This is the Studio Alchemy Podcast, episode 96. Oh, we are almost to 100. The Psychology of Symbols. Our quote of the day was said by Parmendes. Nothing comes from nothing. Hello, everyone. The purpose of this podcast is to explore creative ways to transform our lives using visualization, manifestation, art making, and self-help techniques. Alchemy was the ancient study of changing materials from one thing into another, and we all do this every day. Every choice you make is transforming our world. On this podcast, we explore ways we can change both our physical and spiritual selves for the better. On this podcast, we hunt for the wise balance between accepting what is and taking empowered action. My name is Adi Hirschen. I'm an artist. I sign my paintings with the name Vita. I teach online creativity classes and have written a few books, including The Alchemy of Painting, Developing Your Style and Purpose, and my new book that was recorded for Audible, Start Selling Your Art, A Guide to Starting a Professional Art Business. When this podcast was first started, it was just to share stories about artists and was called The Alchemy of Art Podcast, and now we are the Studio Alchemy Podcast. Uh, I expanded our topics of discussion to include ways that really anybody um, whether they're a painter or not, can harness their creative energy in any way that they choose. And if you want to find out more about my projects, classes, sign up for my art newsletter, I invite you to go to my website, which is studioalchemy.art. Okay, so our topic of the day is the psychology of symbols, which is a big topic, and I have so many little stories and things to share with you on this topic. I, I'm just recently finished a new book. Um, it's in the editing, very slow editing process right now. Um, and it's called The Alchemy of Symbols. And I have a whole section in the book on the psychology of symbols. And what does that mean, the psychology of symbols? Well, um, as an artist, I have over the years been drawn to certain symbols in my, in my life, things I wanted to recreate in my artwork. And I've wondered, you know, why? Why do I go through these phases? Like right now, I've been going through a phase where I've been making these like overly idealistic cottage scenes where there's lots and lots and lots of flowers. And it's just this abundance of uh, British cozy country cottage garden floral, <laughs> um, a burst of flowers. And I, you know, so I, I look at that, I say, okay, why am I having that obsession? What is drawing me to that image? Um, why is it so appealing? There's got to be something in my brain that just gravitates toward that image for a reason. And sometimes we, you know, we have little obsessions and it's very obvious why we have the obsession. It's just, um, you know, and it, it really can be, the obsessions can be anything. It doesn't have to just be, oh, you're painting or, and you do a certain image. Um, it could be that you're obsessed with what, like Star Wars or something. And maybe you're obsessed with Star Wars because you first saw it when you were a little kid and your life has been very stressful lately. And so like watching it is just this like, great release because it just brings you back to this former time when 
you didn't have the tensions that your life has now. That's called a regression, by the way. But like, I think that whenever we have any sort of a drive that is pulling us toward a certain image, a certain um, topic, a certain anything, there is a biological, psychological reason behind it that is motivating us. And oftentimes those things are not clear unless we really question, unless we really look at it and examine ourselves. Right. So I have many examples of this this concept for you. And my first one comes from uh, 20 years ago. I helped an older friend who was um, a single lady living by herself move from one apartment to another apartment. And when I did, you know, I went in and I helped her box up her items and then port them over in you know, we had a bunch of cars and we were all helping her move. And I was given the task of cleaning out the bathroom area and the linen closet. And in the linen closet, she had no less, I'm not over-exaggerating this, guys, 50 bath towels. One woman like at least 50 bath towels crammed in all these little nooks and crannies. And every single bath towel was some sort of a shade of a deep red maroon. And I looked at this, I was like, what is this? Why does she have so many bath towels? You know, one person really only needs like what, two towels? But there must have been something within her that associated the bath towel symbolically with a memory of something good from the past. Um, it, it, I don't know, like, like I imagine like maybe she, she was wrapped up in the bath towel as a kid after her baths and, you know, and maybe she got a hug at the same time from her mom or I, I don't know. I don't know where that came from, but there had to be something within her that was pulling her toward so many towels on a symbolic psychological level. And I kind of suspect that like many uh, things that we have in our lives that we're drawn to these things, she, she was probably not consciously aware and had never really given any thought to the towels. You know, she just accumulated them and then didn't reflect um, why. What is this coming? Do I really need this? <laughs> um, and what can happen in a situation like that is that your motivations are coming from the subconscious mind. So we have the conscious mind. That's the mind, everything is going on in your mind that you are aware of. You are aware of where you are sitting right now and what you had for lunch and you, you, you know um, the basic things that are going on in your life and you understand a lot of what's causing your feelings for this, that, or the other, yes. But then underneath the surface, there are, is the subconscious mind. And the subconscious mind can be more instinctual it can, it can pull us in directions that we aren't really aware of fully. So Carl Jung said, and Carl Jung, the psychologist, 
he wrote a lot about the subconscious mind and so did Freud. He said, until you make your subconscious conscious, it will direct you and you will call it fate. So what is he saying here? He's saying, if you want to be healthy and you want to be fully aware of why you are doing things, you need to attempt to uncover the things that are going on in your subconscious mind so that you can truly understand yourself better. Um, and the idea also, I want to say, is that the subconscious mind is huge. It's vast. That uh, People love to have, um, there's a, an illustration of an iceberg, and the iceberg is the mind, and the conscious mind is the, this teeny tiny little part at the top that we can see the iceberg that's above the water, but then below the water is this huge, vast lump of ice, and that is the subconscious mind. Sub meaning below, of course, in Latin, so the subconscious mind is below the surface. Um, it's big, it's fast, it's pushing you, and you aren't aware of it, and that's kind of scary sometimes, but uh, I do think that if you take the time to examine all of the symbolic things that are going on in your life, you can uncover a lot. Some of the best and most fun techniques uh, I've ever read about for getting at the subconscious mind were created by the surrealist artists um, of the 1920s. And the surrealists, they were reading the work of Jung and Freud, and they said, oh, we want to get at the subconscious mind. How can we do it? And they developed this series of techniques, um, um, a lot of which are automatic. Uh, so automatic writing, automatic drawing, um, and then they, had, they created all these from really fun games. And the idea is that you, you sit down and you automatically write. You don't plan. You just write and write and write and write or you draw and draw and draw and then just see what emerges and see what happens. Um, because if we, we don't plan, then our conscious mind or, you know, the superego and, you know, <laughs> seeing all these psychological terms, but like, like your, your more refined mind will shut down because you are just instinctually working with the art form of, of drawing or the art form of writing. Salvador Dali wrote a great book uh, that's really hilariously funny. It's called 50 Secrets of Magic Craftsmanship. And in it, he shares like some of his most famous techniques of how to get to the subconscious mind and then get ideas for artwork. Um, so for example, his most famous one was, he, he said, okay, take a key and put it in your hand and then you fall asleep. So you slowly fall asleep and then when you have almost fallen asleep, your hand will relax and then you'll drop the key and then you wake up and then you write down whatever you had been thinking and dreaming about at that moment. So you're allowing the mind to relax and then wake it up right as it's about to really hit that dream state and then pull from that. Let me give you more examples. Um, so let's see. I mean, of my students' artwork, like I've had so many students gravitate towards, like like I had one guy who he did only paintings of mountains. 
mountain scene after mountain scene after mountain scene after mountain scene. And I, you know, I don't know why. Why did he do that? Um, I had one little girl who, this was a elementary age class, but she did hearts on every single thing, not just Valentine's Day. Everything had hearts. So, um, and of course, you can, if you're an artist, look at what you've, you gravitate toward, or if you're not a painter, um, just look at what you've surrounded yourself with in your home. Uh, do you love lakes? Like you just have like images of lakes all over your house. Okay, what does the lake symbolize for you? Do you have positive associations from your background because you loved going to the lake with your grandfather when you were a kid or something like that? Like there's got to be a reason why you're gravitating toward that symbol. Um, a few obsessions that I've had, like when I was a kid, uh, shortly after my father died, I was obsessed with all things death. <laughs> uh, like, I, like I love dinosaurs and bones and the study of bones and how bones fit together. And I loved uh, like ghost stories, creepy, creepy ghost stories, um, very and Scooby-Doo type mysteries. <laughs> you know. Anyway. Um, but I think now I can look back and say, oh, well, it's clear. You know, I was processing uh, the death of my father. And part of that grieving process was just to have a fascination for a little while with things that were dead. <laughs> and, um, and that was a healthy part of my grieving process. Um, when uh, COVID hit, uh, it was like summer of 2020. I went through this phase, guys, like a month when I was obsessed with Elvis. I mean, I just like, I couldn't get enough of Elvis and I hadn't listened to Elvis in years. Um, but I was just cranking up the Elvis, watching his YouTube videos, which I'd never seen any of that stuff before. And I just, just loved it. Um, and it, it was a great escape for me because, you know, we had the, the tension of the year 2020, but also my, my own illness that was going on at the time that made me like just super stressed out. And it was like, you know what? Forget that. I'm just going to focus on Elvis <laughs> and just like escape into Elvis land. <laughs> and, um, and so that was super fun. And I think sometimes these obsessions can be very healthy coping mechanisms as long as we're staying aware of why we're doing it. So I believe that I had that obsession with Elvis probably because uh, when I was a little kid growing up in Knoxville, Tennessee, the oldies station played a lot of Elvis. And so here it is, this tense time in 2020, and I obsessed with Elvis and it just brought me straight back to childhood and all of those happy times and memories. Um, another example of a funny incident from my life that like, I just, I sometimes think about this and I just, I really wonder why I did it. And I think I know why. So I was 20 years old. I was in Greece and I was uh, on one of the islands and there's a pool, so I'm, I'm sitting around the pool, I don't know, like a chair at the side of the pool with a bunch of other people. It's probably like actually a total of like 100 people on 
the, around the pool and then at the beach itself beyond. And I just, I didn't think, I all of a sudden just got this antsy feeling and I stood up and I stripped naked. <laughs> I, I, I took off my bikini, I took off the bottom, I, I just stripped naked and I walked around the pool uh, through the little path and then down to the beach and then I walked straight into the water and I swam out as far as I could go and then I returned and emerged from the water and walked back and um, and it was it was just a really strange, powerful experience. And I think that I can symbolically look at this and understand it now. I think that, you know, maybe the ocean represented life, sensuality, sexuality, jumping into, um, jumping into life in a way in which you're like participating. Like I am going to fully submerge myself in the act of being here in this beautiful space. And then like, I, I think I stripped naked because it was like this strange, like vulnerability. Like I wanted to be vulnerable and I wanted to be powerful. Like I wanted to step into my own power. And then I also realized later that there's the symbol of the goddess Aphrodite, right? Aphrodite emerged from the ocean and I emerged from the ocean. And so that whole scene that I created and I look back, I try to analyze why I did it. What was, what was I thinking? It's like, I knew I was safe in this space because there's so many people and I could embrace this powerful side to myself be, by being both vulnerable and really, really bold. It was like I was saying to the world, you are not going to get me down. I am going to be my full, powerful self and I am going to um, immerse myself in life. I am going to be alive. <laughs> and so I, I, I think I understand the motivation for it now. But, you know, I guess we, we all have things like that where we reflect back and we're like, why? Why did we do that? I mean, I, I'm actually kind of proud of <laughs> I'm kind of proud I did this. I had this crazy, exciting, like unconventional moment um, that... I'd like to maybe not always do in that exact same way, but I would, I'd still like to embody that, that spirit and everything I do. Like I'm not going to halfway do anything. I am going to fully submerge myself. <laughs> right. So, um, and I, and I want to add that back about 15 years ago, I had this midlife crisis where I had, been holding in lots of things and some of them I was aware of and some of them I was not aware of they were in the subconscious mind 
Um, and then I had this period of just being tense, letting things out, sort of like barfing things out. And then, you know, just, just, it was like confusing for me. And, and I just look back at that time. And I think if I had been better at having these skills of looking to all of the things I was doing and analyzing them on a symbolic level, then I would have learned more about myself and I would have I would have not had that repressed time. And gosh, it's, you know, it's funny. I go through these periods where like, I don't think about that time for like a year or two. And then all of a sudden for a week, I'm like thinking about it again and reprocessing all of the problems and stuff that I discovered about myself during my midlife crisis. And each time like I come back to it, I feel like I understand it a little bit better. Like the distance of time, you know, time healing all wounds, I can more clearly see them since I have processed things over the years and I'm constantly processing everything as much as I can so I can just try to understand myself and get wiser and smarter and and enjoy life more. <laughs> but like, like it's interesting just you know, for some reason, you know, it's one of those like, oh, I was reminded of this and then I was reminded of that. And then the past couple of weeks have been like just rethinking about this, those problems that I had during that time. And the last episode was part of that too, that whole silence thing. It's like, I just feel that I have healed so much because I've learned to let go of the silence and to find my voice. And I've learned to really examine myself and question why I am motivated to do things. And so I'm really thankful that I had the courage to start doing this process of, of looking at these things that I do and, and questioning them and coming out the other side of it more self-aware. So here's, a, here's another great example. Um, about... Uh, uh, maybe this was like 10, 11 years ago, something like that. I created a series of paintings that were all of people and they were people interacting. So there's always at least two people in the, in the painting and they are embracing um, in some fashion, okay? And a lot of these I did in like these brown tones, the real earthy burnt sienna um, and creams. And I thought that they were super romantic. Like a lot of them, I, I just thought they were, they were kind of sexy, right? But then I had this epiphany, like two years later, I looked back at, at several of them that were on the wall and I realized, holy crap, in every single picture, I had the woman down below looking up adoringly at a man who is sort of, looking away aloof and uncaring and um and I thought oh my god the way I have put these people in the picture symbolically shows how I viewed relationships because of several key relationships in my life 
that had that dynamic where I was just like adoring. I felt anyway, like I was adoring them and they were very aloof. Um, and then I realized, well, you, you know what? I don't want that in my life. I want to have an equal relationship where we're really on the same plane and we are, we authentically want to spend time together. Nobody's aloof or uncaring. We are both into this at an equal level. And so then I started making paintings where the people are the same size and they are right at eye level with each other and they are both looking adoringly at each other as that dynamic. It's just trying to reinforce what I want and then, then just convincing myself, you know what, I know this is possible. I've had it before. It's just like that was like so prevalent in certain experiences that it just dominated the way I viewed what was possible in relationships. And so, um, so again, you know, here we can look at what we've done and say, ah, aha, I can learn from this. There are several books that I want to recommend if you love this topic. Um, and they're both about symbols and evolutionary psychology. <laughs> so there's one book that's by Anjan Chatterjee. It's called The Aesthetic Brain, How We Evolve to Desire Beauty and Enjoy Art. And aesthetics, of course, is the study of the beautiful. Like, why do we think certain things are beautiful and other things are ugly? So um, that book and Dennis Dutton's book, The Art Instinct, Beauty, Pleasure, and Human Evolution. Both of these books are looking at the psychology of the beautiful and artwork, why we are drawn to certain images, why we see certain things as beautiful, and they are trying to analyze it from the standpoint of an evolutionary biologist. Um, and they, they both had pretty much the same message that because of our instincts to survive and because of our instincts for sexual reproduction, we are pulled toward certain symbols and images. For example, they've done studies around the world showing people different types of artwork and asking them, what of these do you find the most appealing? And they'd show them, you know, modern abstract stuff and they'd show them portraits and they'd show them landscapes. And across the board, everyone around the planet statistically prefers a lush landscape where there is a water source with animals. And the reason, you know, Dennis Dutton says, well, the reason is because we are, we want to survive. And in order to survive, we need to be in an environment that can support us, that has uh, fruit, vegetables, uh, animals that we can eat. And so because of that instinct, we are drawn to landscape paintings. Um, and, you know, Anjan Chatterjee's book, The Aesthetic Brain, is really more about, um, you know, like, like why do we find certain faces attractive uh, versus not attractive? And some of that has to do with actual mathematical equations and stuff like that. But at any rate, I mean, I have had experiences where I think... <laughs> my instincts were driving me to create artwork itself. So for example, 
in 2019, I fell in love with a poet whose name is Brad Severance. And Brad wrote a ton of poetry for me. And I created a ton of paintings for him. So we're sort of like taking the new relationship energy that we had and like just it pushed both of us to create more artwork. And Dennis Dutton would say, well, that's because you were trying to attract your mate by showing them that you can make beautiful artwork. So it's like, like, a, like Peacock's Feathers, like, hey, look at me. I'm beautiful and I'm, I have something great to offer. You know, that's, he is saying that is a main motivating drive behind why we create artwork itself. Um, I think it's a stretch to say, and some people would say this, that all artwork is created just to be, um, to drive the opposite sex to us. I think that's a bit oversimplistic, but I have had many moments in my life where I think, yeah, yeah, I think this was part of my motiva- part of my motivation here, and I will own it, you know. There's also another great book that I'd like to recommend that is not quite the same topic, but kind of sort of related, and it's by Roy Sutherland, who is a, he's a British marketer. So he's in advertising marketing and his book is called Alchemy. Um, and it's hilarious. It's a really funny book. Um, but it's about how we are motivated to purchase things because of our instincts. And it might be, you know, just our instinct to survive or feel safe or our sexual instincts. Um, and One example of that that I think from the marketing world is just perfect to share is of De Beers. So back in 1938, the De Beers Diamond Mining Company created an ad campaign, which I think is probably the most successful ad campaign of all time. Okay, 1938, they started advertising diamond rings as wedding engagement rings. Okay, before that time, there were some engagement rings that had stones, but they weren't all diamonds. It was, you know, it could easily be an emerald also. Um, And most people just had a standard gold band. And in fact, (laughs) for most of human history, well, okay, let's, let's put it this way. Like the past 2,000 years, wedding rings have pretty much only been worn by women as it's marking them as territory. Okay, don't touch her because she's mine. Um, and it was only in World War II that it truly became customary for both partners to wear wedding rings. Okay, so we have that history, which uh, like... I don't wear a wedding ring. I know I'm, I'm very unconventional in many, many ways, but, um, but it, the history of it does bother me. There, there's something symbolically here that, that rubs me the wrong way. Um, but I will say that years ago, I did wear a wedding ring, and I did have an engagement ring that was emerald. And it was really funny because... When I got that engagement ring, and I had told um, my husband, Sean, I don't 
I don't want a diamond. Okay. Because the De Beers diamond mining company um, uses uh, children in India um, as child labor. And I have a problem with that ethically. And yes, that does still go on today, unfortunately. So I'd like to add in here that if you are someone who has a diamond wedding ring, um, we can still be friends. <laughs> it's, you know, most people are not aware of the ethical problems with the uh, diamond mining industry. And um, if you're one of those people, please don't worry about it. You are not alone. Um, so at any rate, but like, it was amazing to me how many of my friends said, oh, your, your wedding ring's not a diamond? I thought it had to be a diamond. It doesn't have to be a diamond. De Beers, who sells pretty much all of the world's diamonds and has created this market for diamonds, they've, they've made it like um, uh, a monopoly, basically. They, they own all of the diamond mines around the world, and then they can up the prices for them. Um, they made this customary through that ad campaign. And so, and yet that ad campaign was so successful that I had a number of friends who like, they were confused. Like I thought your wedding ring, like I thought it had to have a diamond and they didn't even know that that's just one option. Or they just, it's like, like, like Roy Sutherland in his book, the marketing book, Alchemy, he talks about how you can really manipulate people through symbolically appealing to their instincts. So someone has an instinct to, you know, get married and they, they and then they they see these ads and then it's it just solidifies in their mind as, oh, that's part of the equation. I have to have this and this and this and this. Um, otherwise, um, I can't be happy. <laughs> you know, it's like I love questioning what, advertising and making sure that I am not buying things that I don't actually want to buy because I've been pushed by these, these images my whole life. So a symbol, just, I'm just going to back up from this whole thing and say, a symbol is an object, an image that represents something else, something like an emotion within us, or it's tied to an experience. And it's my hope that if I can uncover the truth of why I'm motivated, why I'm drawn to certain symbols, I can heal old wounds, I can be empowered and not be manipulated by ad campaigns, <laughs> um, and, and I can just personally grow. And my final little story for you comes from ancient Greece. There was a temple, the temple of Asclepius, and people would go there on a pilgrimage. And they would go there specifically to have dream visions. So they would go up to the temple, and there was all, with, with every ancient Greek temple, there was, like, you had to, you know, go through these different motions and steps and rituals. Um, and 
Asclepius was the god of healing. So they would come to the temple with gifts of cake and honey, and then they would fall asleep under the stars. And then they would dream. Okay. And then there would be a priest who in the morning, they would tell the dreams that they had and the priest would help interpret them and give them guidance. You know, what is this dream trying to tell you? And of course, at that time, those people believed that these dreams are the gifts from the gods, right? And, you know, we don't believe that now, but like, but I do look to the interior of my dreams and to the exterior of all of the symbols that I've created and how I even act them out within the space to fully understand myself better and then also to have direction. So people would, would want healing. You know, they want like, oh, my, I have a, um, a bum knee or something. They go to Asclepius and then they're, they're looking for guidance. How can I heal myself? And I think that ultimately looking to the mind and its motivations, it, it's essentially, it's about healing. So we can transform ourselves to get to a better place than where we have been in the past, especially if it was an unhealthy place, right? Um, back to our quote of the day. The quote was, nothing comes from nothing. And I Put that as the quote because I want to make the point that I believe there isn't anything in your life that isn't being driven from somewhere. Here's a, an example. Like if you make a piece of abstract art that's just color forms, you, it's just all the color blue. That painting, is, it's not just coming out of the ether. It came through you because you've seen other abstract paintings, you associate the color blue with peacefulness, water, the ocean, what, whatever. And then you create that thing and it is coming from within you because of your life experiences. Nothing comes from nothing. And I'll now share my MIT, my most important thing, my main message for you today. Um, and if you want an explanation of what an MIT is, then go to the last episode. But what I wrote down today was, my main message is, only by honestly examining our motivations can we learn the truth of who we are. This concludes the Studio Alchemy podcast. May these thoughts and stories comfort and heal your spirit. May you be filled with inspiration. May you be like the lotus flower and build your home in the muddy water. May you find your voice.